welcome to PS Exhibitions, the podcast. I'm your host, Erica. Today's episode will be a little bit different than our previous episodes. Instead of interviewing artists for our exhibitions, we will be focusing on a topic within art and design history to complement our mission of making the study of art and design relatable and approachable. Virginia has also entrusted me to fly solo on this episode, and I will be joined by our producer and editor, Stefan, to talk to Francesca about her interest and work in ancient Egyptian design and culture. So let's get started. How is everyone doing today? Pretty good. Great, great. So, Francesca, how did you become interested in ancient Egypt? Well, that's a long story, but uh, <laughs> I was I was always the weird kid who was obsessed with Egypt. Uh, even in third grade, I wrote an essay about King Tut. Um, so I was always really, really interested in it. And then as I got older, I went into Latin and you know ancient Rome and stuff. And so in college, there really weren't any Egyptian classes. So I just stuck with the classics, uh, ancient Greece, ancient Rome. Uh, but now I'm actually enrolled in the University of Edinburgh as a grad student. And I'm taking advantage of their Egyptology program to learn more about hieroglyphics and uh, even delve into the history of and archaeology of uh, ancient Egypt. Right. Cool, cool. Were you one of like the aspiring little Indiana Jones kids? <laughs> sort of. Uh, actually, I was lucky enough to go to Egypt. Um, it was sort of a a learning experience because my family went there uh, two weeks before the Arab Spring happened. So I learned firsthand all about how, you know, museums aren't as safe as, you know, they could be and, you know, all of these other political things. It wasn't just, you know, pure archaeology. There was a lot of political stuff going on. Right. So the question is, does it belong in a museum? It depends on the artifact and where, where the museum is. Right, right. So how have you been bridging 21st century pop culture into ancient Egyptian design, culture, hieroglyphics? How does it all make sense, I guess? <laughs> well, um, one way that you can play with language and uh, learn more about um, a culture is by using their language and, you know, making making it into modern day humor. So uh, I actually made OK Boomer in ancient hieroglyphs. It's you uh, Iau, and uh, it, it means pretty much OK or yes, and then elder. <laughs> but uh, I put it on a linguistics group, and everyone seemed to really love it. I got over a thousand uh, likes on it, oh, wow. hundreds of comments. Uh, yeah, it was really cute. It kind of blew up. Uh, and then an Egyptologist got word and then said, this is not how you pronounce any of this, or this is not oh, no. <laughs> this is not it at all. Uh, she actually was kind enough to correct me and uh, allow me to actually uh, use her translation, which is that correct E-U-E-O. Okay. 
So it's just this really funny, uh, I had to chase her down on Twitter because on Tumblr she made a post because on Facebook I made a post. Oh my God. (laughs) There were were like over a thousand people that were really confused and looking at different screenshots of different things. (laughs) (laughs) But all of us learned something, so I'm very happy about that. At the end of the day, we know what OK Boomer is in hieroglyphics. Most important. (laughs) <laughs> and that's the only thing that matters. <laughs> right, right. As long as we know, it's like, you old man. So mm-hmm. we're good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so when thinking about ancient Egypt, I guess, where should we begin? I know a lot of people have this stereotypical idea of what ancient Egypt was like, but the area has an extremely vast history and varied traditions. Um And I think it's a lot more complex than what people imagine, especially what people imagine is often based on Hollywood movies and and things like that. So it's not totally accurate to begin with, but you're also missing a lot of facts that I think are important. Right? I think that it's important for people to understand that there's a lot of history before and after the pyramids. And... um... You know, a lot of movies, uh, you know, the pyramids, uh, they're so old that Cleopatra lived closer to now than to the construction of the pyramids. So (laughs) they're that ancient. And um, even before the pyramids were built, there was so much going on in this ancient Egypt. So even though it is tied to their identity in so many different ways, there's a lot beyond just, you know, looking at it like, oh, it's the pyramids and the Sphinx. Yeah, but I don't think you should reduce, you know, ancient Egyptian culture to just the pyramids or the Sphinx. You know, there's a lot going on. Or, exactly. you know, Elizabeth Taylor, like, as Cleopatra. Like, that, that's no, that's a no-go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, it's like boiling down thousands of years of Roman history to only when the Colosseum was built, you know? It's, right, like, yeah a lot happening (laughs) yeah a lot happening a lot going on a lot of people can't make sense of it exactly yeah so pretty much egypt started as a place um first habitation started on small river islands um and uh they eventually got flooded out by the nile uh but there is that very strong early connection between people and these these little islands and this river that pretty much is their only life source in this vast desert that's around them. Um, So possibly because of these origins and this link to the Nile River giving them fresh water, uh, later philosophy shows that um, Egyptians, they're always talking about the primordial mound, they call it, which in their origin literature is... um, it's sort of this first mound of earth that comes out of this ocean of chaos. And um, Egyptians claim that that's where uh, their way of life started. Um, and so people don't normally connect pyramids with this philosophy, but they should because they were trying to perfect like a primordial mound. That's what pyramids are. Right. It's that that link back to their original roots. Okay. All right. Is there, 
Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just <laughs> going to say, is there a specific reason why they chose what is today the Valley of the Kings? Is that is there a specific reason, or is it just because it was close to the river and that was like their life, basically? Well, so uh, that's a good question. Uh, pyramids, they were actually, um, if you look at the archaeological data, the pyramids were actually built really close to the Nile River, and okay. the Nile has moved. So today, the pyramids are a lot farther away from the Nile than it would have been back then. Right. Um, by the time that the Valley of Kings uh, was used, um, it was a lot later, and people were more secretive about where their grave sites were. Um, okay. But um, it's actually this beautiful beautiful giant natural formation that just sort of rises up out of the desert and um since it's in the west which is associated with death either the death of the sun every day or um sort of away from uh uh the civilized and inhabited areas um this area was already associated with death so it made perfect sense to put a tomb on the west side of the Nile, and in this beautiful, beautiful area with all sorts of natural outcroppings and niches, that way you can uh, safely put a tomb there, and hopefully it would make it uh, without being yeah, grave robbed. Right. Okay. So, thinking about how Egyptians interacted with death, I guess, as you know, today, I think people often think it's like a very morbid sad idea right um did the ancient egyptians think of it that way or is it you're coming out of the nile and you're going to see this amazing immaculate structure um that's supposed to really kind of be like a showstopper in a way um you know what what was the relationship with death does that make sense yeah um so it, it really depends. Um, earlier periods um, sort of associate death with um, uh, temples that they made for their pharaoh. And then once the pharaoh passed, they would actually destroy the entire complex. So there was this incredible absence created from... It's like a monument, but instead of building something, you're taking it away. Right. Uh, and that's how they associated uh, death in that sense. In later periods, they were commemorating with big uh, things that would be left over, like monuments, uh, temple complexes. But the average person um, didn't necessarily have the money to be mummified or even remembered in the same way. But if you were uh, wealthy enough, you would have uh, sort of a little stele put up. Uh, steles are sort of flat sections of marble or uh, limestone and they have carved inscriptions on them. And the hope was any passerby would read the inscription out loud, and it's actually a little prayer for the person. Did everyone have like their own like personalized little prayer then? Or was it like a standard one? You pick like A, B, or C? Yeah, uh, everyone usually, um, well, they had similar similar uh, formulas that they use. They're called offering formulas. 
And uh, that's actually this semester what I spent my time uh, researching, uh, offering formulas, because they're just, you know, most of the things that we find are these tablets, or, you know, even written on scrolls, written on walls. All of them are these prayers, because they were very careful about how they treated death. Um, I think they weren't as scared of it as people today, um, okay. because death was just another part of living for them. Um, it was not the end. Right. Uh, they also had to be very careful about what their, the rest of their afterlife would be like. <laughs> yeah. The afterlife, major thing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. <laughs> going a little bit more into Egyptian religion, can you explain what type of philosophy they had yeah um so egyptians worked um it wasn't a pure dualist system so um think usually dualist systems work with uh one evil god that represents everything bad and evil and one good god which represents everything good and light and pure um sort of yin and yang um that's sort of uh yeah. a similar topic well even with the gods right there's like the four different ways like in that one article you sent about how mm -hmm. like gods were uh like depicted over the years like one was like a falcon um these like all sorts of symbols over the course of like three thousand years and then when you compare that to how long the united states has been around it's like nothing you know exactly and also uh something that really doesn't get across to even other ancient cultures like the romans made fun of the egyptians for having dog-headed gods mm -hmm. and you know they sort of made fun of these like weird carnival creatures painted on their walls but uh it was sort of a metaphorical interpretation so the god would only appear to you either as a human or as an animal never like this half formed creature <laughs> okay it's, yeah it's it's way different than anything that you really see interpreted today right right and now do you think so if i'm understanding this correctly so let's say a dog god came to you in your sleep but it was the same god but in someone else it came to them in a human form mm -hmm. and then what if like people had the conversations and they were like, oh no, last week I got the dog. I don't know why he turned into a human this week. Like, that's weird. Like, do you think, <laughs> like, do you think he's like, what's going on there? Yeah. Um, I think, well, we can't speak, uh, to them, the entire right? culture, but based on what they have left for us, um, they have a very, wide interpretation of things like their their minds a lot more open um they believed that statues it didn't necessarily uh you know if, if it was like a sculpture of osiris that okay um osiris no. wasn't in there all the time it wasn't directly osiris but osiris could inhabit it at any time okay so, and osiris yeah. was the god of what exactly um, he's sort of the god of the underworld, or, um... Okay. Uh, yeah. He, he's uh, a god of mainly order. Okay. Uh, instead of chaos, which would be... Okay. Set. 
Anubis okay. was the god of the dead, right? With the dog yes. heads? Okay. Anubis was sort of the god, um, he was a protector of um, graveyards. And that pretty much started because um, uh, jackals and dogs are sort of on the edges of society, uh, especially the feral populations. So when you're going to these areas where you're burying the dead, you would see them, and that's how you'd associate this. Okay. All right. And I think we're going to include all the citations of the articles that we're talking about in the episode. But in one of the articles, it's suggested that the iconography of a god changed over time. And there was this one god, I think it was of a woman, and then it morphed into a cow. And I find that, like, kind of insulting for women in general. But, you know, <laughs> that's what happened. So how, how do you, well, like, I guess I, I'm confused as to, like, how they evolved. Why did they evolve? Do we know that information? Or is it was just, like, one day they were like, oh, no, the woman's out, the cow's in this week. Like how do you how do you know or like what like keeping up on the trends, like I don't know. I mean, in different cases, it might mean different things. Um, okay. Specifically in Egypt, uh, each region of Egypt had its own gods that were uh, sort of part of the local uh, mythos, and then you get um, you know if if that cult becomes popular in other areas, then that that god spreads. Um, so all of these gods usually start in different local areas and the local interpretation might be a lot different than what it eventually becomes at a national level. And then, uh, you know, Hathor usually is, uh, she's associated both with fertility and also a cow. Um, okay. and, uh, she's a goddess of love, um, sort of, uh, a protector of women, especially during childbirth. Um, okay. yeah, and, yeah. uh, she might be associated with the cow because of, um, sort of this tenderness, but Hathor especially has another side to her, which is the goddess of wrath and, uh, like sort of unbridled rage. So <laughs> she actually, there's this other, um, figure of her that becomes Sekhmet, who is this, uh, lion headed goddess of murder and uh, she's sort of like this Avenger. Uh, so even within this, you know, tender cow, uh, it's <laughs> it's a lot more uh, ominous because you, know, you yeah. have another mother lioness waiting underneath it. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely, but I kind I you know I've probably studied more ancient Greek and Roman culture than ancient Egyptian, but I always find it fascinating how gods and goddesses are very um, human-like in the sense of they have, like, these very evolved personalities, I think. They're not one-dimensional at all. And there's, like, good and bad um, associated with everyone. And I think that's a lot more relatable at times than, you know, uh, Christian um, saints and God and things like that. Um, right. It's different. Does that make sense? It is different. Yeah, um, definitely. These gods, uh, some of the reasons that they can shift over the course of so many years 
is because people start to see different things in them. You know, uh, originally Set, who uh, he's sort of this scorpion-headed, but we're not really sure, like demon-headed god. Of um, he represents sort of the desert and chaos as opposed to the order that Osiris brings, and uh, he over the course of a millennia, he went from being this sort of benign protector of the pharaohs, because chaos can be a good thing, and depending on whatever political power was active at the time, he was slowly demonized. So chaos became something evil. Uh, when originally, right. uh, people in Egypt were very open-minded, and chaos didn't necessarily mean evil. So it, it really... Uh, depending on who was in power and the messages that they were receiving and wanted to see in the world, uh, they were sort of reflecting that or uh, projecting that on their gods. Okay. So sort of like yeah. a really long game of telephone in a sense. Exactly. Passed from generation yeah. to generation. Now, is that more of like <laughs> an oral tradition or do you think that was more like written on tablets and that's how like people or, you know, ancient Egyptians kind of read that? And then, um, you know, pass along that way? Or do you think, like, how, how generational do you think it was, like, over the course of hundreds of years? Good question. Um, we know that they definitely had both oral and also the written records. Uh, unfortunately, only the written records survive today, which would actually uh, be the minority, because um, uh, most Egyptians were not literate. It was only... Uh, people who were specially trained to write and read that were literate, like scribes. Um, but uh, priests weren't actually this exclusive hierarchy that uh, a lot of people think. A lot of people, when they think of Egypt, they think of, you know, the pharaoh on top and then like this elite group of priests, right? And then the farmers. Right. That's usually what people are taught. But a lot of these farmers were people who um, were sort of part-time priests. They were working in the local temple for a part of the year, and there were farmers the rest of the year. Um, so they would be taking an active part in religion. And uh, so I don't think it's out of the question to assume that they were sharing stories and actively having a relationship with the gods that uh, were close to them. But... Egyptians had, you know, the desert and the riverland, life and death, uh, upper and lower Egypt, um, the realm of humans and the realm of immortals. So they had these dualist concepts, but mm -hmm. they also had um, areas uh, of transition. And uh, they were very focused on these areas. Uh, it it kind of goes along with how obsessed they were with death. Because death was that transitional phase. Death brought you to the immortal realm. <laughs> so, okay. you know, it, it's very important to die right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you had to die right with all the accessories, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the whole kit and caboodle. Oh, yeah. Uh, so do you very think there was a fear of death, or do you think it was, like, welcomed as a transition, like, was that kind of like a celebration of life as somebody passed on, or does that really depend on the time period? Um, well, I know that, especially for more wealthy people, 
they'd actually hire professional mourners. So oh my. it was yeah, and there were professionally trained actresses and actors who would wail and sob and follow the procession. So I think they still felt the same things that everyone today does, grief and loss and sadness and absence of a person. But um, as for their belief in the soul, um, the human body was only one of nine parts. And the other eight parts were, uh, you know, they lived on past death. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I see where it's going. Yeah, yeah. It's sad for the people left behind, but it's not like you'll they're gone forever in this, that sense right right yeah okay i get it <laughs> <laughs> it's fun to get at first it's very confusing <laughs> yeah it seems very complex and then you, you think of like these tombs you think like oh my god well, this is all this ton of stuff like how many storage unions do you have to like fill all this imagine like god yeah <laughs> yeah and uh lots of labor uh you know all of these things were made with hand they actually uh egyptians pretty much leveled entire mountains to make you know stonework for their quarries and stuff so they were right. like, masterful in everything that they did yeah that would be a great i hope i hope there was a conversation between like an ancient egyptian couple and you know one of the partners like how could you do this to me and the other's like well i moved a mountain for you so you have a place to live on forever i moved mountains (laughs) (laughs) i hope i hope that happens at some point in life oh i i hope so too I, I personally love to imagine these like very 21st century or what we think of as 21st century conversations and, and these like, very ancient cultures. I hope, you know, couples still had bickering fests and oh, stuff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure they did. And, uh... <laughs> Can you well, imagine the hieroglyphics of the argument on a wall? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know uh, from this period of Egyptian history, but I know when the Romans occupied it, uh, there's a surviving papyrus uh, letter from some poor soldier's wife. And, uh, you know, he's obviously been soldiering for, for years. And she sends him a letter like, you haven't been home in years. Come back home. I miss you. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> yeah. But like, I hope, I hope it was like the conversation of like, why didn't you take out the trash an hour ago and stuff like that? You know, yeah. normal, normal things. So, Francesca, if we were able to walk through one of these ruins today, what are the different type of senses that we could pick up? What, like, what's going on? Well, um, today, in a lot of these ruins, um, one thing that people pick up on is the fact that there's no roof. <laughs> oh, okay, that's important. Yeah. So today's ruins, um, they really give a sense of um, the scale and size of these structures. But, um, you know, the walls back then would have been brightly painted 
all sorts of colors, uh, bright reds, bright golds, bright blues. Um, they would have been decorated everywhere. Um, there would have been all sorts of uh, people uh, populating these these temples and palaces. Uh, you know, people who had uh, mansions back in the day, even even as late as a hundred years ago, they had scores of staff in these giant places. Really? Whereas today, yeah. Whereas today, usually, when you think of a big mansion, you don't even think about the people running it. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, you don't think about the downstairs people, I guess. It's just the upstairs people. Exactly. When, you know, people, especially in these ancient cultures, they were, if they were rich, they were never alone in a room. They always had servants or scribes or all of these uh, teams of people, gardeners, fishers, bakers, uh, that were living with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, to, to keep the house running, I guess, right? Exactly. And uh, at a a temple, you would find people bringing offerings or uh, priests doing daily rituals. Uh, I mentioned earlier that these priests were part-time priests. So uh, they'd sign up for, um, it seems, you know, a a few months out of the year. They would dedicate themselves to this, this ritual. Every morning they'd do a ritual, uh, every night they'd walk through the temple at different stages and do different things. Uh, sort of like how monks have daily prayers too in a Catholic tradition. Um, but of course monks aren't part-time. Right. <laughs> um, that is devotion. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and while they're, while they're sort of walking through, um, each little gateway that they go through brings them into a more secluded, sacred area of the temple. Um, so you have sort of the the big courtyard where most people uh, end up, and that's where you do your prayers or you do your your visitation. You might be able to go into the next layer or the next layer after that, uh, but eventually you get into this private chamber. Um, while this is all happening. Uh, the priests would be chanting or singing, and they'd also have incense with them. Uh, another smell or another sense that is lost is uh, smell uh, today. Mm-hmm. You don't really get a sense of what these places smelled like. Right. And uh, incense, incense could mean a lot of different things. Um, a lot of these plants uh, are sort of lost. Uh, we don't know exactly what they match up with. Right. But we do know that um, Egypt bought a lot of marijuana from another place uh, called uh, Ta Necher, which means the land of the gods. And it's okay. not like they thought that this land was heaven. Uh, it was pretty <laughs> much they pretty much bought a lot of this marijuana uh, from a country that gave them a lot of other imports for their temples. Okay. So sandalwood and, you know, all sorts of nice things. Or you get the good good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I have not been able to prove that uh, this incense in the temples would be marijuana. It could be a ton of other things. And, you know, maybe in certain situations it was different, uh, different things being burned. But, um, you know, if we're talking about ritualistic, uh, entering different layers of the temple, 
uh it is right. not out of the question <laughs> yeah no i yeah i mean it would be quite an experience i think um go in like each layer of people chanting and screaming and carrying on and the <laughs> smell possibly psychedelics and you're like you don't know what's going on it wild ride a wild ride <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> made better um so the ancient egyptian word for temple is hewet necher and it actually means uh mansion of the god so whichever god was dedicated in this uh sacred area you'd sort of slowly move your way into their private chamber where you see okay. a golden statue of this god so okay. uh, right at the end of your like sort of the zenith of your experience is entering <laughs> that chamber and uh sort of being face to face with your god whichever one you're worshiping currently right and uh you know clothing them and giving them fresh offerings uh giving them fresh incense so it's it's just a very interesting experience that uh and the fact that it wasn't exclusive, you know, it, we always think of an exclusive priest with some sort of secret rite going on and in some sort of secret area. But these were mm -hmm. local people involved in this every year. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Going in for this trippy <laughs> experience. I love yeah, it. Exactly. Even if weed wasn't involved, I think it's a very it's interesting. It's still got to been a lot. Yeah. Still had yeah. a lot have been going on. I mean, even. <laughs> Egyptians I mean, definitely even knew how think... to uh, throw a ritual, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah a rager. Total rager. Total <laughs> rager. <laughs> um, I mean, even thinking about it, like, when you look at ruins today, and you're right, there are these different levels that people go through, and it gets smaller as it goes often. And if you have a lot of people in a space, wouldn't you feel a little bit claustrophobic if it's one golden statue and then three dozen people chanting around you in this tiny shoebox of a place? Like, oh my gosh, that seems a lot. It just seems like it. Maybe coming out of the pandemic, we're not used to being around more than like three people at one time. Maybe it just sounds like a crazy idea to me right now, but <laughs> seems like it could be a lot to handle. Yeah, that's probably why they only signed up for three months. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and uh, depending on which level of priest you were, you went into different rooms and stopped there. So okay. as you're journeying, you're also sort of losing some of this crowd, which must be a really weird experience and very interesting, too. Yeah, or it could be a relief, I guess. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. oh, good. It's smaller. And then... You you get to the last, you know, area and you're left alone with a god. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh. Well, if you're friends with the god, I guess it's fine, right? Yeah. <laughs> if you're doing your role well and, uh, you know, part of it is also the offerings, which are usually food grown in the area. So you could be giving your own food to this god that you're also part-time priesting for. Right. Right. So you better you better show up well prepared, I guess. So moving into another direction, but talking about temples and hieroglyphics the same way, I think a lot of people associate 
natural themes with ancient Egyptian art and design. So can you begin a conversation with us about that, please? So Egyptian art and design, um, it's so enhanced because of these natural themes. Um, They had a very interesting play with style. Um, it's, It's really beautiful to look at. But have you ever seen a mouse? An Egyptian style mouse? I don't think or so. A, no. An Egyptian style pig? No. Um, what? Enlighten us, please. <laughs> so, um, for a long time, because of these natural themes depicted on the walls, uh, we've sort of assumed that uh, there was this connection, like this deep connection to nature. And, you know, obviously, if you're living along the Nile, it's it's beautiful, and you're constantly seeing these animals. And, uh, you know, obviously, they're reflecting these actual animals into their art. Um, but it turns out, based on statistics and stuff, they were pretty exclusive about which animals got to be in their art. And this is over the course of over 4,000 years, and, uh, you know, no depictions of certain animals that were physically there in Egypt for the entire time. <laughs> so is is there a hieroglyphic of a mouse? No. Oh, they were vermin even all the way back then. Yeah, and we're not actually <laughs> sure why they didn't branch out. So we think it must have some either religious significance or some social connotation. So maybe they did think that they were, you know, disgusting or rodents or uh, right. maybe they didn't like them because they were mostly agricultural. So they thought that okay. putting them on the wall yeah. was sort of bad like luck. bad luck. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. If you had a mouse on your wall, then like maybe that mouse is going to eat your grain next year or something. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But uh, we've even found they were pretty exclusive with plants. Um, okay. So only 6% of the animals of Egypt are represented on walls and in Egyptian art. And uh, around 200 species of plants are mentioned in medical texts or on walls. And there's over 2,000 plants that exist in Egypt, either past or present. Okay. Yeah, so, so they're they're definitely picking their favorites. Yeah, right. Uh, over... 8,000 species of animals uh, can be found in Egypt, and only 183 specimens of animals appear in the art. Right, and everyone just thinks of, like, the cats. So... <laughs> yeah, well, what, so what are some examples of animals that made it on the wall? Ooh, uh, they really predator animals, like crocodiles and hawks. Um, they like ducks because they, they hunted them a lot. Uh, so that was a good uh, offering. Oxen they have represented on walls, and that's mostly because it's uh, sort of tied. Uh, part of an offering formula is you give uh, oxen and ducks and waterfowl. So those are tied together. Um, dogs you see. Um, you see fish of different types. Uh, all sorts of uh, cows and domestic animals. Uh, and that's uh, sort of because Egyptians were proud of this domestication effort, too. 
Um, right. Unfortunately, even though they were masters of these animals, um, they they didn't treat them the best. <laughs> Archaeologically, remains tend to uh, show that these animals are mistreated, even if they are sacred temple mummified creatures. Um, not the best of care. <laughs> But that goes to show um, we sort of paint them as this this people that are uh, living with nature and um, sort of on an equal playing field. Obviously, they weren't polluting as much as we do today, but um, they were still masters of their environment. They were controlling everything from water to um, different species of animals, um, even the first zoo happened in ancient Egypt. Oh. So they were importing giraffes from, uh, you know, sub-Saharan Africa. They were importing okay. baboons from around Somali, Somalia. So <laughs> they, they weren't the um, peaceful and relaxed people. Right. That a lot of, that a lot of uh, you know, interpretations of them say they are. Right. Yeah. I mean, common misconception, right? I mean, they probably viewed them more as like other than comparable to humans. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's horrible that they abuse their animals, but I think it's interesting to imagine that the ancient Egyptians were very real people in that sense that, you know, they had good days and not good days. Um, you know, just like people today, I guess, it makes it a little bit more relatable, I guess. Um, yeah, I, I think, I mean, and this is not exclusive to ancient Egypt, I think just history in general. I think people like to assume that history, um, there's often like this peaceful, like, oh, don't you remember back in the day when you could do X, Y, and Z? Um but, you know, it is, it's a real place, and there were good things and bad things. That's just the way the life works. Right, right. Especially, uh, you know, um, a lot of people talk about the slave labor aspect. Which... Yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> yeah, now, now we're going really out. dark. <laughs> yeah. uh, you can't, if you're treating other people in this way, you're going to be treating your animals that way, exactly. too. Exactly, I think... Um, yeah, you have to understand multiple sides of culture and history in order to, you know, uh, have a greater information of to what history is like in general. Right. And it only, it only helps you interpret these people and, you know, their lasting memory. Um, right. You know, obviously, they weren't uh, the oppressive exclusion exclusionary people that a lot of uh uh interpretations suggest they were because you know their their priestly class wasn't this elite group but yeah. uh, you know they were also engaging with uh you know all of these different practices that today's world would consider problematic mm -hmm. but also they weren't polluting the nile nearly as much as we are today so um it, it's a real uh, there's a there's a lot of similarities between their world and ours, and a lot of differences. I'd say. Yeah, 
No, that makes sense. Yeah. So what do you think, considering all these things, what do you think is lost from our understanding of the Egyptians and what can be restored or uncovered to better um, educate us, but also future generations? I definitely think um, something that um, is able to be recovered is the language. Um, and the more people who get interested in the language aspect or the, the artifact and the art aspect, the better. Um, mm -hmm. But also, um, you know, tourism, uh, if you go to, if you go to these places and you actually walk along these ancient ruins and stuff, you definitely get a, a sense of reverence for them. Um, some things are lost forever, like we'll never know exactly what notes they played on a flute if we find a flute, or what music they would play to accompany rattles, or how they danced, but they were pretty good at recording um, depictions of it on walls, in tombs, uh, in their writing. Uh, you know, they survived for over 3,000 years as a culture. And, uh, you know, they were very aware of the fact that, um, you know, they were part of a larger chain of people. Right. So they definitely uh, recorded a lot. So how are you pursuing your interests and studies in ancient Egypt now? Well, right now I work actually at a state park. Um, so I'm just more on the history side of things in the local uh, northern New Jersey area. Okay. But um, I, after my degree, I might work in museums or um, I'm not actually sure, but I really like it. And um, I think that it's worth knowing, uh, especially the language aspect. You can't really get that from a um, sort of an online uh, Google search. You yeah, really need to sit sense. down and take a class on it. Right. Right. So I'm I'm just living my third grade dreams. <laughs> so, for the budding Egyptologist, where would you suggest people go to learn more? Mm, good question. Um, if they are in America, um, we have tons of museums uh, with Egyptian artifacts. Um, so I encourage them to do their research and find a museum close to them. Uh, I am partial to the Met. Uh, I, I usually look at their collection online. Uh, if you're abroad, um, I go to the National Museum of Scotland. They have a beautiful exhibit and, you know, a beautiful collection of stuff online to look at. Um, and if you're lucky and, uh, you have enough money saved up, uh, I'd go to the actual place itself in Egypt. Um, if you aren't feeling brave, uh, there are a lot of uh, tour groups that will take you to all of these places, and you don't have to worry about things like which side of the road of Cairo do you drive on? <laughs> right. <laughs> is it Cairo safe to walk here? Where is it going? Yeah, don't open right. ancient tomb. <laughs> Because uh, the Museum of Cairo is beautiful, too, and it's newly restored. Um, 
they have they had some damage after the Arab Spring, but uh, right now they actually just had the procession of the pharaohs, and like it was a big event. Yes, yeah, so. I did see that. <laughs> yeah, There's all sorts of information out there. Um, also for languages and stuff, uh, even local libraries have usually at least one crusty book about Egyptian language. <laughs> so. You bring up a very interesting conversation i think between obviously you love museums i love museums stefan loves museums la di da but um i think when we're considering like ancient spaces like egypt or greece rome mm -hmm. even to an extent china um i guess there's a pretty big topic right now um as to like should the met or um, the British Museum even um, <laughs> return these ancient artifacts. What do you think about that? I mean, this is like opening up a whole different can of worms. I'm, but <laughs> uh, I, I, I didn't say the British Museum for many reasons. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I try to I try to direct people to the Museum of Scotland. <laughs> um, so the, I've I've specifically looked at the Met um, because. Uh, I I like their um, policy towards all of this. Um, okay. Although in the early days of all of this, museums have done atrocious things, and um, you know they were stealing ar these artifacts, and that's why a lot of it is in America because right. we pretty much uh, got our hands on a lot of it. But, <laughs> As um, one would imagine. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, Pretty early on, uh, especially the Egyptian government, um, once it became its own body, um, it started to enact a program where anything that's sort of a repeat artifact goes abroad. Uh, anything that's unique to Egypt and um, defined as more of a personal connection or um, part of their national heritage stays within the country, uh, specifically, usually in the Museum of Cairo, but also other institutions. And uh, so I believe even in the 1920s, when uh, a lot of the Metropolitan's, uh, uh, you know, digs were taking place, they actually had this policy where um, the Egyptians looked at these artifacts that were found at these places, um, and they said, anything that uh, you know, is sort of a repeat or we have a lot of, because there's always a room in a museum that has thousands and thousands of jars in it. Right. I'm not even kidding. There's tons and tons of clay objects. There's tons and tons of different, uh, uh, you know, examples of this one piece. Then that can go right. abroad. Anything that you find that's very, very special stays within Egypt. And uh, so the Met has enacted that policy um the museum or the uh, Museum of Natural History in New York uh, mm -hmm. also has been guilty of a lot of these things, especially with native cultures in America. Right. Um, I'm happy to say I know that the totem poles in the totem pole room are uh, recreations that were actually uh, funded uh, later on in oh. the alphabet soup period. They actually okay. paid okay. Native artists to recreate them so that they would actually have copies and then they gave back the originals. Okay. So, yeah. yeah. So I like, I like this idea of, like, keep one, share the rest. 
Exactly. Um, yeah. So I, I kind of pick and choose museums based on that policy. If if they have uh, an artifact of intense identity for a group of people and they sort of lord it over this group of people for a long time, <laughs> British <laughs> Museum. It's like, you know who you are. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Like, uh, th there's a reason that museums in England are free and it's usually because it's it's stuff that they stole from everywhere else <laughs> well do you think the americans are jealous and so that's why they made the washington monument in the obelisk so they'd be like hey we got one too or... yeah well in in uh in the middle of central park we actually have uh an ancient yeah uh, oh, that's right an ancient obelisk right yeah and you know in in uh i i believe Cleopatra's Needle is also in London. I think they also have a copy. They have the pair of uh, okay. obelisks. One went to America, one went to the UK. Okay. Yeah. It, it's a lot of <laughs> terrible history of colonization, mm -hmm. a lot of uh, appropriation, and, you know, a lot of terrible, terrible things. But um, now we're entering a period where um, I'm hopeful that museums are only displaying what they morally can, and I'm really hoping that they're giving back what they need to. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. Like, specifically with the Rosetta Stone, they were going to give it back um, in 2011, mm -hmm. and then since the Arab Spring happened... Um, they're like, no, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, if you are trusting these artifacts with their descendants. Right. You, you can't pick and choose in that situation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You can only go so many ways. Yeah. So <sighs> it, it's very interesting ground. Um, Egypt is also in a strange place where, um, you know, there is this national sense of identity tied to these things. And then there's this backlash because a lot of people, especially under Mubarak's rule, thought that he was another pharaoh. And so they associated hmm. oppression with Mubarak and these ancient relics that were part of their shared culture. So Yeah, um, that's really you know, interesting. Yeah, and it's, you know, smashing or just disturbing these mummies in um in these museums and stuff like i mean it's awful 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 for the history but for so long these objects have been used by white people <laughs> and taken by white people and only interpreted by white people that yeah. it they they feel like it isn't theirs anymore right so, that they're almost trying to reclaim something i guess like reclaim an identity or exactly. alter an identity yeah yeah there, it's yeah it, there are a lot of layers to this it is it, it is a lot of layers it's very complex yeah egypt has always been a complex place and it always will be i feel like tell me if i'm wrong but i feel like ancient egyptians were very much about keeping up the appearances of their lives like they were the ultimate yeah keeping up with the Jones. Like they just <laughs> wanted to aesthetically look great and personify this 
beauty and elegance and that's what i think we associate with them today but like there's a lot going on like they did some bad things yeah so <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah it's interesting you bring that up because in your art in, in their art you can definitely see this sort of perfectionist uh right idea. and except for the case of akhenaten most of the art tries to emulate the earlier art or tries to keep it very uniform like you know between you know a, a painting painted 2000 years ago you're going to notice differences between paintings now and 2000 years ago but you might not notice those differences between a painting from uh you know one period of egyptian art and a different period of egyptian art right right so is that the pharaoh basically going like instead of having like the different tiers of gods was that basically the pharaoh equating himself to a god and being like hey like you gotta you do you get what i'm saying or... <laughs> um, no no okay because <laughs> i i remember this might be me reaching a little bit from like my freshman year of art history we're covering mm -hmm. different areas but um i think there was a time period where around like a thousand bc where the pharaoh basically said like okay instead of having like the gods on a different plane you know i'm on that same plane and so maybe he was changing the way things were dictated but i could be misremembering uh, yeah no you're you're thinking of uh akhenaten the heretic who um he he represented really what archaeologically we can find as the most dramatic shift from the other mainstream religion over the course of over 3000 years uh so he's really interesting um he's also known as king tut's dad uh <laughs> formerly known as king tut's dad <laughs> right right his claim to fame now <laughs> But, uh, yeah, so his art um, looks very different and, you know, almost art deco-y. Uh, super interesting stuff. Um, he uh, highlighted uh, the god Aten over other gods, and he even rearranged temples um, to sort of uh, make, like, giant offerings in the middle where people would come and feast. And it was all about the sun. Whereas uh, the old, older Egyptian religion was more about like the, the traveling from little corridor to corridor and like small rituals like that. Um, so we're not actually sure much about him um, because a lot of it was destroyed purposefully after. But the fact that they had such a strong reaction says something about him. <laughs> yeah, <gotcha>. right. <laughs> like uh, King Tut was pretty much um, the guy the. The pharaoh that they put in place after Akhenaten, uh, and he restored the old ways. Okay. So there's a whatever the real story is. There's a reason that the Egyptians uh, chose to stick to these older ways instead of embracing Akhenaten, and uh, some people call it monotheism, but uh, oh, there's. Okay. There's some evidence to suggest that worshiping other gods didn't stop. Right. So he just introduced something, tried some things, had had fun, a little bit funky in there, 
and then uh, got murdered by a bunch of priests. He was Probably. he was the rebel, and they didn't like it. <laughs> the bad boy of the mummies. Yeah, the bad boy of the mummies. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, and then you get King Tut, who's who's kind of like the poster child of all of ancient Egypt, I feel. Yeah, yeah, and rightfully so, because he's the one who pretty much restores it back to the ancient ways. So, right. I, I don't yeah. know his personal politics or <laughs> what that was about uh it seems to be a very dramatic shift of public opinion and then shift back but mm-hmm. um yeah he, he's but he was also cool he wasn't pharaoh yeah but he wasn't a pharaoh for a very long time didn't he die quite young yes uh due to the fact uh he had a lot of different complications like right. uh, you always see depictions of him riding on horseback or riding in a chariot he mm-hmm. probably wasn't physically able to do that. He had, uh, I think he had both scoliosis and a club foot. Yeah. And uh, some other uh, really extreme health problems. Um, he married his half-sister, Anka Sunamun, And uh, they had two stillborns that we believe are his. And they were actually entombed with him. Okay. Yeah, but, no, uh, the... The ancient Egyptians had some had some weird relationships, as we would define in the 21st century, I think. So that, yeah. that's a different conversation. But oh, yeah, my goodness. there's a yeah. lot going on there. Even, <laughs> even Egyptian um, religion is really confusing because depending on which city you're studying, they'll have a whole different set of uh, the pantheon. Like sometimes Isis's sisters is the sister of Osiris. Sometimes she's his wife, sometimes sister wife, sometimes not related. It's and you know, unlike the Greeks and Romans, they didn't write down their mythology. We don't know right. they had mythology in the sense that we know it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we can only get things from what they reference. So in the middle of yeah. uh, sort of an offering formula, they'll say like, "And Osiris, uh, Isis's husband, or Isis's." Uh, brother so we can only sort of piece together what we find now you would think with a culture and a civilization that is so obsessed with order um they would you know narrow down their facts a little bit like every city (laughs) would be on the same page right but then you like you've said before and you've brought up this idea of chaos um that chaos was not necessarily a bad thing, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. It was just a way of life. So there's there's this juxtaposition between order and chaos yeah. in Egyptian culture, which is really interesting. It is. Especially, you know, once you get so much order, uh, you know, when each little temple has its own bureaucracy and it has its own uh you know organization running it then all of a sudden you might get chaos in the sense that all of these little bureaucracies are now politically fighting with each other right so out of order brings chaos and out of the chaos you can get more order (laughs) it's just like the human experience exactly yeah yeah well the egyptians were doing something right if you know they survived 
and you know it, it's not that they weren't unchanged uh, over the course of three thousand years, but they were able to keep such a sense of identity throughout that right. time. Yeah, and and even such an sense of identity that we still associate with them today. Exactly. Even if it is a stereotypical idea to a sense, but you know, I think if you were to pull like a bunch of elementary school kids and ask like where were the pyramids they're gonna say egypt (laughs) right um yeah so like they did it they did something right you're right Mm -hmm. so francesca this has been fascinating and thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us today i have learned so much so until next time on ps exhibitions bye Thank you for having me. Bye.